Chapter Twenty Two of A Girl the Limber Lost by Jean Stratton Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two, wherein Philip Ammon kneels to the Queen of Love and Chicago comes to the Limber Lost. The month which followed was a reproduction of the previous June. There were long moth hunts, days of specimen gathering, wonderful hours with great books, big dinners all of them helped to prepare, and perfect nights filled with music. Everything was as it had been, with the difference that Philip was now an avowed suitor. He missed no opportunity to advance himself in Elnora's graces. At the end of the month he was no nearer any sort of understanding with her than he had been at the beginning. He reveled in the privilege of loving her, but he got no response. Elnora believed in his love, yet she hesitated to accept him, because she could not forget Edith Carr. One afternoon, early in July, Ammon came across the fields, through the Comstock woods, and entered the garden. He inquired for Elnora at the back door and was told that she was reading under the willow. He went around the west end of the cabin to her. She sat on a rustic bench they had made and placed beneath a drooping branch. Ammon had not seen her before in the dress she was wearing. It was clinging mole of pale green trimmed with narrow ruffles and touched with knots of black velvet. A simple dress, but vastly becoming. Every tint of her bright hair, her luminous eyes, her red lips and rose-flushed face, neck and arms grew a little more vivid with the delicate green setting. Ammon stopped short. She was so near, so temptingly sweet, he lost control. He went to her with a half-smothered cry after that first long look, dropped on one knee beside her and reached an arm behind her to the bench-back, so that he was very near. He caught her hands. "'Oh, Nora!' he cried tensely. "'End it now! Say the strain is over! I pledge you that you will be happy. You don't know. If you only would say the words, you would awake to new life and great joy. Won't you promise me now, Elnora?' The girl sat staring into the west woods, while strong in her eyes was her father's look of seeing something invisible to others. Ammon's arms slipped from the bench around her. His fingers closed firmly over hers. His face came very near. "'Elnora,' he pleaded, "'you know me well enough. You have had time and plenty. And it now, say you will be mine.' He gathered her closer, pressing his face against hers, his breath on her cheek. "'Can't you quite promise yet, my girl, the limber lost?' Elnora shook her head. Instantly he released her. "'Forgive me,' he begged. "'I had no intention of thrusting myself upon you, but, Elnora, you are the veriest queen of love this afternoon. From the tips of your toes to your shining crown I worship you. All my life I will. I want no woman save you. You are so wonderful this afternoon I couldn't help urging. Forgive me. Perhaps it was something that came this morning for you. I wrote Polly to send it. May we just try it if it fits?' Will you tell me if you like it? He drew a little white velvet box from his pocket and showed her a splendid emerald ring. It may not be right, he said. The inside of a glove finger is not very accurate for a measure, but it was the best I could do. I wrote Polly to get it because she and mother are home from the east this week, but next they will go on to our cottage in the north and no one knows what is right quite so well as Polly. He laid the ring in Elnora's hand. Dearest, he said, don't slip that on your finger, put your arms around my neck and promise me all at once and abruptly, or I'll keel over and die of sheer joy. Elnora smiled. I won't, not all those venturesome things at once. But Phil, I'm ashamed to confess that ring simply fascinates me. It is the most beautiful one I ever saw, and do you know that I never owned a ring of any kind in my life? 
Would you think me unwomanly if I slip it on just a second before I can say for sure? Phil, you know I care. I care very much. You know I will tell you the instant I feel right about it. Certainly you will, agreed Emma promptly. It is your right to take all the time you choose. I can't put that ring on you until it means a bond between us. I'll shut my eyes and you try it on so we can see if it fits and looks well. Philip turned his face toward the west woods and tightly closed his eyes. It was a boyish thing to do, and it caught the hesitating girl in the depths of her heart as the boy element in a man ever appeals to a motherly woman. Before she quite realized what she was doing, the ring slid on her finger. With both arms she caught Ammon and drew him to her breast, holding him closely. Her head drooped over his, her lips were on his hair. So an instant, then her arms dropped. Ammon lifted a convulsed, white face. "'Dear Lord,' he whispered. "'You you didn't mean that, Eleanor. You, what made you do it?' "'You, you look so boyish,' panted Eleanor. "'I didn't mean it. I, I forgot that you were older than Billy. Look, a look at the ring.' She thrust her hand before him to distract his attention. "'The queen can do no wrong,' quoted Ammon between his set teeth. But don't you do that again, Elnora, unless you do mean it. Kings are not so good as queens, and there is a limit with all men. As you say, we will look at your ring. It seems very lovely to me. Suppose you leave it on until time for me to go. Please do. I have heard of mute appeals. Perhaps it will plead for me. I am wild for your lips this afternoon. I am going to take your hands. He caught both of them and covered them with kisses. He lifted his face. Elnora, he said, will you be my wife? I must have a little more time, she whispered. I must be absolutely certain, for when I say yes and give myself to you, only death shall part us. I would not give you up, so I want just a little more time, but I think I will. Thank you, said Ammon. If at any time you feel that you have reached decision, will you tell me? I don't feel as if I could lose a second waiting to stumble on that fact. Will you promise me to tell me instantly, or shall I keep asking you until the time comes? You make it difficult, said Elnora, but I will promise you that. Whenever the last doubt vanishes, I will let you know, instantly, if I can. Would it be hard for you? whispered Ammon. I... I don't know, faltered Elnora. It seems as if I can't be man enough to put this thought aside and give up this afternoon, said Ammon. I'm ashamed of myself, but I can't help it. I'm going to ask God to make that last doubt vanish before I go this night. I'm going to believe that ring will plead for me. I'm going to hope that doubt will disappear suddenly. I will be watching. Every second I will be watching. If it happens and you can't speak, give me your hand. Just the least movement toward me, I will understand. Would it help you to talk it over with your mother? Shall I call her? Shall I? Honk! 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 Hart Henderson set the alarm of the big automobile going as it shot from behind the trees lining the brushwood road. The picture of a vine-covered cabin... A great drooping tree, a green-clad girl, and a man bending over her very closely flashed into view. Edith Carr caught her breath with a snap. Polly Ammon gave Tom Levering a quick touch and wickedly winked at him. Several days before, Edith had returned from Europe suddenly. She and Henderson had called at the Ammon residence, saying that they were going to motor down to the Limberlost to see Philip a few hours, and urged that Polly and Tom accompany them. Mrs. Ammon knew that her husband would disapprove of the trip, but it was easy to see that Edith Carr had determined on going. So the mother thought it better to have Polly along to support Philip than to allow him to confront Edith unexpectedly and alone. Polly was full of spirit. 
She did not relish the thought of Edith as a sister. Always they had been in the same set. Always Edith, because of greater beauty and wealth, had patronized Polly. Although it had rankled, she had borne it sweetly. But two days before, her father had extracted a promise of secrecy, given her Philip's address, and told her to send him the finest emerald ring she could select. Polly knew how the ring would be used. What she did not know was that the girl who accompanied her went back to the store afterward, made an excuse to the clerk that she had been sent to be absolutely sure that the address was right, and so secured it for Edith Carr. Two days later, Edith had induced Hart Henderson to take her to Onabasha. By the aid of maps, they located the Comstock land and passed it, merely to see the place. Henderson hated that trip and implored Edith not to take it, but she made no effort to conceal from him what she suffered, and it was more than he could endure. He pointed out that Philip had gone away without leaving an address because he did not wish to see her or any of them. But Edith was so sure of her power, she felt certain Philip needed only to see her, to succumb to her beauty as he always had done, while now she was ready to plead for forgiveness. So they came down the brushwood road, and Henderson had just said to Edith beside him, This should be the Comstock land on our left. A minute later the wood ended, while the sunlight, as always pitiless, etched with distinctness the scene at the west end of the cabin. Instinctively, to save Edith, Henderson set the whistle blowing. He had thought to go on to the city, but Polly Ammon stood crying, Phil! Phil! Tom Levering was on his feet shouting and waving, while Edith, in her most imperial manner, ordered him to turn into the lane leading through the woods beside the cabin. Fix it some way that I get a minute alone with her, she commanded as he stopped the car. That is my sister Polly, her fiancé, Tom Levering, a friend of mine named Henderson, and, began Ammon. And Edith Carr, volunteered Elnor. And Edith Carr, repeated Philip Ammon. Oh, Nora, be brave for my sake. Their coming can make no difference in any way. I won't let them stay but a few minutes. Come with me. Do I look scared? inquired Elnor serenely. This is why you haven't had your answer. I have been waiting just six weeks for that motor. You may bring them to me at the arbor. Ammon glanced at her and broke into a laugh. She had not lost color. Her self-possession was perfect. She deliberately turned and walked toward the grape arbor while he sprang over the west fence and ran to the car. Elnora, standing in the arbor entrance, made a perfect picture, framed in green leaves and tendrils. No matter how her heart ached, it was good to her, for it pumped steadily and kept her cheeks and lips suffused with color. She saw Philip reach the car and gather her sister into his arms. Past her, he reached a hand to Levering, then to Edith Carr and Henderson. He lifted his sister to the ground and assisted Edith to alight. Instantly, she stepped beside him, and Elnora's heart played its first trick. She could see that Miss Carr was splendidly beautiful while she moved with the hauteur and grace supposed to be the prerogatives of royalty, and she had instantly taken possession of Philip Ammon. But Ammon also had a brain which was working with rapidity. He knew Elnora was watching, so he swung around to the others. "'Give her up, Tom,' he cried. "'I didn't know I wanted to see the little nuisance so badly, but I do. How are father and mother? Polly, didn't the matter send me something?' "'She did,' said Polly Ammon, stopping on the path and lifting her chin as a little child, while she drew away her veil. Philip caught her in his arms and stooped for his mother's kiss. "'Be good to Elnora,' he whispered. Uh-huh, assented Polly, and aloud, 
Look at that ripping green and gold symphony. I never saw such a beauty. Thomas Esquith Levering, you come straight here and take my hand. Edith's move to compel Ammon to approach Elnora beside her had been easy to see. Also, its failure. Henderson stepped into Ammon's place as he turned to his sister. Instead of taking Polly's hand, Levering ran to open the gate. Edith passed through first, but Polly darted in front of her on the run, with Phil holding her arm, and swept up to Elnora. Polly looked for the ring and saw it. That settled matters with her. "'You lovely, lovely, darling girl!' she cried, throwing her arms around Elnora and kissing her. With her lips near Elnora's ear, Polly whispered, "'Sister, dear, dear sister!' Elnora drew back, staring at Polly in confused amazement. She was a beautiful girl, dressed in some wonderful way. Her eyes were sparkling and dancing, and as she turned to make way for the others, she kept one of Elnora's hands in hers. Polly would have dropped very dead in that instant if Edith Carr could have killed with a look, for not until then did she realize that Polly would even many a slight, and that it had been a great mistake to bring her. Edith bowed low, muttered something, and touched Elnora's fingers. Tom Levering took his cue from Polly. I always follow a good example, he said, and before anyone could divine his intention, he kissed Elnora as he gripped her hand and cried, Mighty glad to meet you. Like to meet you a dozen times a day, you know. Elnora laughed and her heart pumped smoothly. They had accomplished their purpose. They had let her know they were there through compulsion, but on her side. In that instant, only pity was in Elnora's breast for the flashing dark beauty, standing with smiling face while her heart must have been filled with exceeding bitterness. Elnora stepped back from the entrance. "'Come into the shade,' she urged. "'You must have found it warm on these country roads. Won't you lay aside your dust coats and have a cool drink? Philip, would you ask Mother to come and bring that pitcher in the spring-house?' They entered the arbor, exclaiming at the dim, green coolness. There was plenty of room and wide seats around the sides, a table in the center, on which lay a piece of embroidery, magazines, books, the moth apparatus, and the cyanide jar containing several specimens. Polly rejoiced in the cooling shade, slipped off her duster, removed her hat, rumpled her pretty hair, and seated herself to indulge in the delightful occupation of paying off old scores. Tom Levering followed her example. Edith took a seat but refused to remove her hat and coat while Henderson stood in the entrance. "'There goes something with wings. Should you have that?' cried Levering. He seized Annette from the table and raced across the garden after a butterfly. He caught it and came back mightily pleased with himself. As the creature struggled in the net, Elnora noted a repulsed look on Edith Carr's face. Levering helped the situation beautifully. "'Now what have I got?' he demanded. "'Is it just a common one that everyone knows and you don't keep? Or is it the rarest bird off the perch?' "'You must have had practice. You took that so perfectly,' said Elnora. "'I am sorry, but it is quite common and not of a kind I keep. "'Suppose all of you see how beautiful it is and that it may go nectar-hunting again.' She held the butterfly where all of them could see, showed its upper and under-wing colors, answered Polly's questions as to what it ate, how long it lived, and how it died. Then she put it into Polly's hand, saying, "'Stand there in the light and loosen your hold slowly and easily.' Elnora caught a brush from the table and began softly stroking the creature's sides and wings. Delighted with the sensation, the butterfly slowly opened and closed its wings, clinging to Polly's soft little fingers, while everyone cried out in surprise. Elnora laid aside the brush, and the butterfly sailed away. "'Why, you are a wizard! You charm them!' marveled Levering. 
"I learned that from the Bird Woman," said Eleanor. "She takes soft brushes and coaxes butterflies and moths into the positions she wants for the illustrations of a book she is writing. I have helped her often. Most of the rare ones I get go to her." "Then you don't keep all you take?" questioned Levering. "Oh dear, no!" cried Eleanor. "Not a tenth. For myself a pair of each kind to use in illustrating the lectures I give in the city schools in the winter, and one pair for each collection I make. One might just as well keep the big night moths of June, for they only live four or five days anyway. For the bird woman, I only save rare ones she has not yet secured. Sometimes I think it is cruel to take such creatures from freedom, even for an hour, but it is the only way to teach the masses of people how to distinguish the pests they should destroy from the harmless ones of great beauty, and secure propagation privileges for them. Here comes Mother with something cool to drink. Mrs. Comstock came deliberately, talking to Ammon as she approached. Elnora gave her one searching look, but could discover only an extreme brightness of eye to denote any unusual feeling. She wore one of her lavender dresses, while her snowy hair was high-piled. She had taken care of her complexion, and her face had grown fuller during the winter. She might have been anyone's mother with pride, and she was perfectly at ease. Polly instantly went to her and held up her face to be kissed. Mrs. Comstock's eyes twinkled, and she made the greeting hearty. The drink was compounded of the juices of oranges and berries from the garden. It was cool enough to frost glasses and pitcher and delicious to dusty, tired travelers. Soon the pitcher was empty, and Elnora picked it up and went to refill it. While she was gone, Henderson asked Philip about some trouble he was having with his car. They went to the woods and began a minute examination to find a defect which did not exist. Polly and Levering were having an animated conversation with Mrs. Comstock. Henderson saw Edith arise, follow the garden path next the woods, and stand waiting under the willow which Elnora would pass on her return. It was for that meeting he had made the trip. He got down on the ground, tore up the car, worked, asked for help, and kept Philip busy screwing bolts and applying the oil can. All the time Henderson kept an eye on Edith and Elnora under the willow, but he took pains to lay the work he asked Philip to do where that scene would be out of his sight. When Elnora came around the corner with the pitcher, she found herself facing Edith Carr. "'I want a minute with you,' said Miss Carr. "'Very well,' replied Elnora, walking on. "'Set the pitcher on the bench there,' commanded Edith Carr, as if speaking to a servant. "'I prefer not to offer my guests a warm drink,' said Elnora. "'I'll come back if you really wish to speak with me.' "'I came solely for that,' said Edith Carr. It would be a pity to travel so far in this dust and heat for nothing. I'll only be gone a second. Elnora set the pitcher before her mother. Please serve this, she said. Miss Carr wishes to speak with me. Well, don't you pay the least attention to anything she says, cried Polly. Tom and I didn't come here because we wanted to. We just came to checkmate her. I hoped I'd get the opportunity to say a word to you, and now she has given it to me. I just want to tell you that she threw Phil over in perfectly horrid style. All of us detest her for it as much as he does. She hasn't any right to lay the ghost of a claim to him, has she, Tom? Nary a claim, said Tom Levering earnestly. Why, even you, Polly, couldn't serve me as she did Phil and ever get me back again. If I were you, Miss Comstock, I'd send my mother to talk with her and I'd stay here. Tom had gauged Mrs. Comstock rightly. Polly put her arms around Elnora. Let me go with you, dear, she begged. I promised I would speak with her alone, said Elnora, and she has to be considered, but thank you very much. How I shall love you, exulted Polly, giving Elnora a parting hug.
The girl slowly and gravely walked back to the willow. She could not imagine just what was coming, but she was promising herself that she would be very patient and control her temper. "'Will you be seated?' she asked politely. Edith Carr glanced at the bench while a shudder shook her. "'No, I prefer to stand,' she said. "'Did Mr. Ammon give you the ring you are wearing, and do you consider yourself engaged to him?' "'By what right do you ask such personal questions as those?' inquired Elnora. "'By the right of a betrothed wife.' I have been promised to Philip Ammon ever since I wore short skirts. All our lives we have expected to marry. An agreement of years cannot be broken in one insane moment. Always he has loved me devotedly. Give me ten minutes with him, and he will be mine for all time. I seriously doubt that, said Elnora, but I am perfectly willing that you should make the test. I will call him. Stop, commanded Edith Carr. I told you that was you I came to see. I remember, said Elnora. Mr. Emmon is my betrothed, continued Edith Carr. I expect to take him back to Chicago with me. You expect considerable, murmured Elnora. I will raise no objection to your taking him if you can, but I tell you frankly I don't think it possible. You are so sure of yourself as that, scoffed Edith Carr. One hour in my presence will bring back the old spell, full force. We belong to each other. I will not give him up. Then it is untrue that you twice rejected his ring, repeatedly insulted him, and publicly renounced him? That was through you, cried Edith Carr. Phil and I never have been so near and so happy as we were on that night. It was your clinging to him for things that caused him to desert me among his guests while he tried to make me await your pleasure. I realize the spell of this place for a summer season. I understand what you and your mother have done to inveigle him. I know that your hold on him is quite real. I can see just how you have worked to ensnare him. Men would call that lying, said Elnora calmly. The second time I met Philip Ammon, he told me of his engagement to you, and I respected it. I did by you as I would want you to do by me. He was here parts of each day, almost daily last summer. The Almighty is my witness that never once, by word or look, did I ever make the slightest attempt to interest him in my person or personality. He wrote you frequently in my presence. He forgot the violets for which he has to send you. I gathered them and carried them to him. I sent him back to you in unswerving devotion. And the Almighty is also my witness that I could have changed his heart last summer if I had tried. I wisely left that work for you. All my life I shall be glad that I lived and worked on the square. That he ever would come back to me free by your act. I never dreamed. When he left me, I did not hope or expect to see him again. Elnora's voice fell soft and low. And behold, you sent him, and free! You exult in that, cried Edith Carr. Let me tell you, he is not free. We have belonged for years. We always will. If you cling to him and hold him to rash things he has said and done because he thought me still angry and unforgiving with him, you will ruin all our lives. If he married you, before a month you would read heart hunger for me in his eyes. He could not love me as he has done and give me up for a little scene like that. There is a great poem, said Elnora, one line of which reads, For each man kills the thing he loves. Let me tell you that a woman can do that also. He did love you, that I concede. But you killed his love everlastingly when you disgraced him in public. Killed it so completely he does not even feel resentment towards you. Today he would do you a favor if he could, but love you, no, that is over. 
Edith Carr stood truly regal and filled with scorn. "'You are mistaken! Nothing on earth could kill that!' she cried, and Elnora saw that the girl really believed what she said. "'You are very sure of yourself,' said Elnora. "'I have reason to be sure,' answered Edith Carr. "'We have lived and loved too long. I have had years with him to match against your days. He is mine. His work, his ambitions, his friends, his place in society are with me.' You may have a summer charm for a sick man in the country. If he tried placing you in society, he soon would see you as others will. It takes birth to position, schooling, and endless practice to meet social demands gracefully. You would put him to shame in a week. I hardly think I should follow your example so far, said Elnora dryly. I have a feeling for Philip that would prevent my hurting him purposely, either in public or private. As for managing a social career for him, he never mentioned that he desired such a thing. What he asked of me was that I should be his wife. I understood that to mean that he desired me to keep him a clean house, serve him digestible food, mother his children, and give him loving sympathy and tenderness. Shameless! cried Edith Carr. To which of us do you intend that adjective to apply? inquired Elnora. I never was less ashamed in all my life. Please remember, I am in my own home, and your presence here is not on my invitation. Miss Carr lifted her head and struggled with her veil. She was very pale and trembling violently, while Elnor stood serene, a faint smile on her lips. "'Such vulgarity!' panted Edith Carr. "'How can a man like Ammon endure it?' "'Why don't you ask him?' inquired Elnor. "'I can call him with one breath. But if he judged us as we stand, I should not be the one to tremble at his decision. Miss Carr, you have been quite plain.' You have told me in carefully selected words just what you think of me. You insult my birth, education, appearance, and home. I assure you I am legitimate. I will pass a test examination with you on any high school or supplementary branch or French or German. I will take a physical examination beside you. I will face any social emergency you can mention with you. I am acquainted with a whole world in which Philip Ammon is keenly interested that you scarcely know exists. I'm not afraid to face any audience you can get together anywhere with my violin. I'm not repulsive to look at, and I have a wholesome regard for the proprieties and civilities of life. Philip Ammon never asked anything more of me. Why should you? It is plain to see, cried Edith Carr, that you took him when he was hurt and angry and kept his wound wide open. Oh, what have you not done against me? I did not promise to marry him when an hour ago he asked me the last time and offered me this ring because there was so much feeling in my heart for you that i know i never could be happy if i felt that in any way i had failed in doing justice to your interests i did slip on this ring which he had just brought because i never owned one and it is very beautiful but i made him no promise nor shall i make any until i am quite quite sure that you fully realize he never would marry you if i sent him away this hour you know perfectly that if your puny hold on him were broken, if he were back in his house among his friends and where he was meeting me, in one little week he would be mine again as he always has been. In your heart you don't believe what you say. You don't dare trust him in my presence. You are afraid to allow him out of your sight because you realize what the results would be. Right or wrong, you have made up your mind to ruin him and me, and you are going to be selfish enough to do it. But that will do, said Elnora. Spare me the enumeration of how I will regret it. I shall regret nothing. I shall not act until I know there will be nothing to regret. I have decided on my course. You may return to your friends. 
"What do you mean?" demanded Edith Carr. "That is my affair," replied Eleanor. "Only this: when your opportunity comes, seize it. Any time you are in Philip Ammons' presence, exert the charms of which you boast, and take him. I grant you are justified in doing it if you can. I want nothing more than I want to see you marry Philip, if he wants you. He is just across the fence under that automobile. Go spread your meshes and exert your wiles. I won't stir to stop you. Take him to Onabasha and to Chicago with you. Use every art you possess. If the old charm can be revived, I will be the first to wish both of you well. Now, I must return to my guests. Kindly excuse me. Elnora turned and went back to the arbor. Edith Carr followed the fence and passed through the gate into the west woods, where she asked Henderson if the car was ready. As she stood near him, she whispered, "'Take Phil back to Onabasha with us.' "'I say, Ammon, can't you go to the city with us and help me find a shop where I can get this pinion fixed?' asked Henderson. "'We want to lunch and start back by five. That will get us home by midnight. Why don't you bring your automobile here?' "'I am a working man,' said Philip. "'I've no time to be out motoring. I can't see anything the matter with your car myself. But, of course, you don't want to break down in the night on strange roads with women on your hands.' I'll see. Philip went into the arbor where Polly took possession of his lap, fingered his hair, and kissed his forehead and lips. When are you coming to the cottage, Phil? she asked. Come soon and bring Miss Comstock for a visit. All of us would be so glad to have her. Philip beamed on Polly. I'll see about that, he said. Sounds pretty good. Oh, Nora, Henderson is in trouble with his automobile. He wants me to go to Onabasha with him to show him where the doctor lives and help him get fixed so he can start back this evening. It will take about two hours. May I go? Of course you must go, she said, laughing lightly. You can't leave your sister. Why don't you go back to Chicago with them? There's plenty of room and you could have a fine visit. I'll be back in just two hours, said Eamon. While I'm gone, you be thinking over what we were talking of when the folks came. Miss Comstock can go with us just as well as not, said Polly. That back seat was made for three and I can sit on your lap. "'Come on, do come,' urged Damon instantly, and Tom Levering joined him, but Henderson and Edith silently waited at the gate. "'No, thank you,' laughed Elnor. "'That would crowd you, and it's warm and dusty. We will say good-bye here.' She offered her hand to all of them, and when she came to Ammon, she gave him one long, steady look in the eyes, then shook hands with him also. End of chapter 22